When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why is everyone suddenly bearish again? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, helping us make sense of the markets today. I'm joined by my colleague, Andreas Dino Larson. And a little bit later, Jeff Myers, the CEO of Cobia Capital, will be here to drill down into the small cap area and highlight a couple of opportunities he sees. But Andreas, let's let's get this sort of big picture first. And there's a lot going on. This is the first full tra- trading week of December, the last month of the year which is always kind of action-packed, but there seems to be a lot going on today and a lot of red, right? We see equities, U.S. equities just closed with losses across the board. Energy also lower today, leading the way, crude down 3%. Are we seeing a turn in sentiment? Do, is it just me or do you feel like a lot more people sound like they're getting bearish again? No, I, I perfectly agree. I've seen at least a couple of big institutional investment banks saying the same over the past week here. I've seen various big Twitter accounts turning bearish over the past week. So I think you're onto something there, Maggie. Uh, and in terms of today's price action, I find it kind of interesting that we are back to the good old pattern of Good news equals bad news. Uh, We had a tremendous report out of the service sector in the US, but apparently that's bad news for equities since it kind of puts a question mark in front of what Powell told us just a few days ago. Yeah, not what the Fed wants to see. Um, although maybe giving fuel to some who keep talking about a soft landing, but I don't know. We know the Fed is really determined to try to get a hold on inflation, and everybody was encouraged when Powell suggested they might sort of start to pull back a little bit on the intensity of the rate increases. Why? What's going on? I mean, why isn't that good? It, it, why are we not saying, oh, this is a soft landing? We can got to get the most, best of everything. Why did everyone immediately go bearish? If we look at the sub-indices of the uh, service PMI out today from the US, I think we have a couple of interesting things to point out. First of all, if we look at the price survey, um, so the survey that asks companies for the input prices um, in the service sector, we are still uh, at a territory around 70 in that mm. um, index, which basically means that you should expect service inflation to um, print in the range of five to six percent on usual correlations. Uh, so I guess that is the thing that you need to point out from today's survey. The sticky component of inflation, the service inflation, will remain high uh, on historical correlations given this print of 70 in the service price survey. Yeah, and that means potentially that's going to raise concerns about wage inflation, right? If we're all spending on services and eating out and you know, doing all that kind of stuff we haven't been able to do. Um, And we know the Fed really cares about that in the labor market. Do you think people are going to, you think the Fed's going to message that they're walking back that 50 basis point cut in December? I mean, is that what we should be bracing for? And what does that mean for equities? 
watch the um, inflation report first. Mm -hmm. uh, but I wouldn't rule out that they will have to at least open the door for prolonged interest rate hikes more than 75 basis points at the next meeting. Uh, I think the tool that they will use from now on is to keep signaling that they will hike until the service inflation is in a territory where they like it to be. Uh, and as a consequence of today's survey, I would argue that we need to reprice the Fed a little bit in an aggressive direction again. And I think that matters a whole lot for the equity outlook overall, uh, especially given the optimism that we've seen on the back of the last two inflation reports pointing in a, uh, in a negative direction or in a disinflationary direction, mostly due to goods disinflating. Mm. But if services um, don't follow south, then I guess the Fed will need to hike for longer. So why do we see oil prices down as well? Because if you think the economy is running, you know, running strongly, then that would be, you, you would think that could, you know, give a boost to energy prices. But we saw it move in the other direction. But there's a lot going on. So what, what's driving on the energy front? I think we um, need to look at the material discrepancy between the outlook for the manufacturing sector and the outlook for the service sector. Uh, we had the ISM uh, manufacturing outlook um, out on Friday uh, with a negative print, uh, also mm -hmm. below expectations. And if we look at the energy consumption in the manufacturing sector, it's obviously much higher than in the service sector on a per capita level, uh, which means that when activity is dropping in the manufacturing sector, it is a signal to the commodity market to, to sell off in my view. Uh, and I think quite interestingly, what we see across the board in uh, sort of energy intensive companies is that the demand is dropping now, while we see the demand moving from uh, production and manufacturing to, to the service sector quite materially these months. And that is a move that needs to be reflected in the commodity space at, as it is a move from more energy intensive consumption to less energy intensive consumption. Uh, and uh, I, I can maybe bring up a chart that um, kind of shows where I'm headed here because uh, on chart two, Claire, we have a, a chart on the um, running um, price of transporting a, um, a container from Shanghai to Los Angeles, basically, in dark blue. Uh, and in orange, we have the PCE goods uh, index, so the uh, goods inflation index measured by uh, the Federal Reserve. And quite interestingly, we see in the demand for transportation, basically, or for um, transporting containers from uh, from Asia to, to the West. And I think that's a material signal that the amount of goods purchased in US households and European households is on the way down. Um, and the correspondent activity in, um, in the manufacturing sector is on the way down as well. I think that's noteworthy for the energy market. Mm. So what do you make of the fact that OPEC Plus decided to hold steady on output? Well, they, they will hold steady at around 29 million barrels a day, um, which is still a decent number in a historical context. So from a supply perspective, we didn't really get any negative surprises uh, through the weekend. Um, and if you pair that with the story unfolding today that the oil price cap implemented by the G7 countries on Russian oil, um, I tend to think that we net-net received positive supply news 
uh, from Friday until today. Uh, and I think that's essentially why you see this reaction in the uh, oil market. If, if we look at the dynamics right now in the oil market, I find it interesting that we uh, received a, a message from the um, Saudi Arabian oil company Aramco earlier today that they will lower the premium on uh, Arabian light oil sold to Asia uh, to just a few dollars above the uh, benchmark. Um, they sold that exact same oil at uh, almost $10 in premium to the uh, uh, crude benchmark earlier this year, uh, which is an, an interesting change of scenery because to me it is a signal that either Saudi Arabia is scared of veining demand in Asia or else they are kind of scared of Russia flooding Asian markets as a consequence of this G7 oil price cap. So if we look at the details of this oil price cap, um, essentially what we know is that the European Union will re at all, while the G7 countries have agreed to make it difficult for other countries to buy Russian oil at a level above $60 per barrel. But if we look at most uh, Russian benchmarks, they are already trading just south of that $60 uh, a barrel uh, benchmark. So to me, um, it's not really a biggie from a supply perspective. And I think a lot of um, oil market bulls had expected this oil price cap to withdraw uh, if not two, then at least one million uh, barrels a day from the market. Uh, and for now, I, I I simply cannot see that supply constraint as a consequence of Russian oil already trading below the cap and as a consequence of the mere fact that oil always finds a way. It's almost like water, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. There's you're trying to figure out, it's such a difficult environment. We've talked about this a lot, trying to figure out these very unpredictable geopolitical pieces that are going to fit together. I had a chance to sit down with Diego Perea of Quadriga um, as part of our Don't Wait for January series, kind of talking about these big themes that people need to start plugging into now. And he thinks we're in the midst of a paradigm shift where higher volatility will be the norm across a lot of different asset classes. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. For the time being, inflation is, is, a, is the biggest uh, concern and we're hiking rates uh, aggressively to try to, to contain it. But I think it's, uh, we'll see if too little, too late, but certainly too late. And uh, to, to, to the extent that a lot of those excesses and imbalances are already in place. And, and as we do that, I think we are likely to result in, a, in an environment of sustained uh, high inflation. Uh, this is arguably the single biggest, most important thing. Uh, investors need to get right uh, inflation. But I think that uh, in, including that volatility around inflation, which we could see uh, there's a very polarized view of the world, uh, it's likely to result in, in high volatility in markets. And I think this is linked to high risk. So this is a new paradigm of significantly higher volatility, significantly higher inflation, and uh, significantly higher risk. It was such an intriguing conversation. I encourage all of you to go check out that full interview. We'll be dropping on our website for members tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, December 6th. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, so, Ralph, hi, is asking a question What are the three things people aren't talking about enough in macro? Clearly, Diego thinks inflation is one of them. But I'm just interested to get your thoughts on that, Andreas. I mean, it is a it is an interesting idea, um, and we certainly see very divided camps on what what the forecast will be for things like inflation. Let me answer that question uh, with a response on inflation as well, because I frankly think it's uh, it's the most interesting topic right now. If you look at the inflation picture in the US right now, I think we have a huge discrepancy between the outlook for inflation on goods versus the outlook for inflation on services. Mm. But what we don't discuss enough is that given the change in consumption patterns through the pandemic, um, the updated weights in the inflation index uh, back in um, January this year will favor a bigger uh, sort of weight to the goods consumption as a consequence of all of, all of the goods purchased by households through the pandemic. So if we have a, a disinflationary picture in goods relative to services, then I actually think it will uh, almost get too much uh, weight in the calculation as a consequence of the weights being updated right after the pandemic. And uh, they only update these weights every other year. So um, it basically means that we will wait um, another um, year or so before we get updated weights again, right? Uh, and therefore, if goods drop in price, even if service inflation remains sticky, mm -hmm. then I guess the overall picture will actually look, look fairly benign for inflation into next year. Uh, so what I watch right now is the picture in goods inflation because um, it clearly points south to me, and I don't think it gets enough airtime. Yeah, that's so interesting. But I mean, is that a false narrative? If if there's still all this service inflation that's not being captured, does it matter? Uh, it is a false narrative in the sense that uh, with updated weights, they would probably uh, come up with another bottom line. Uh, but still, in the meantime, it's very tricky for the Federal Reserve to sort of explain that away with technicals, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So they will have to at least partly adapt to the reality of a goods inflation um, that prints lower and lower uh, and um, a goods inflation that uh, has a lot of emphasis in the overall bottom line. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I can hear all the people, you know, um, that talk about technology, including Raul, talking about, well, if there's service inflation, does that matter and filter through if you've got, you know, a bunch of automated things helping us all in the service area? I certainly see it when I go out. But um, that's why there are these big themes that we're going to be touching on um, as we sort of turn the corner into 23. I want to get one more question into you, Andreas, before I let you go. Um, Colin asked, and we, as everyone knows who's listening, and if you don't, Andreas has been all over the energy situation, especially as it relates to Europe. Um, Colin asking, how could Russia flood without access to enough shipping? Yeah, uh, I guess what Russia is trying right now is to build sort of a dark fleet uh, and they will try to um, ensure the uh, shipping fleet directly because that is essentially the uh, way that the European Union and the G7 countries try to target the shipping fleet. They try to um, refrain them from getting insurance uh, if they uh, decide to um, yeah, tr go with uh, with Russian oil uh, and therefore the Russians are now starting to 
uh, at least at, they're attempting to ensure that the the, um, the global shipping fleet, whether they will succeed with it is another question. Uh, but again, I find it highly unlikely that it is a big deal since we are already trading below the benchmark. So we need to remember this is an oil price cap and you are allowed to transport the Russian oil at a price that is lower than 60. Uh, so as long as you don't pay more than 60, you're allowed to transport it. There's one more story uh, that um, that cross, and I just want to put it on everyone's radar. We're not going to have time to talk about it in depth, but um, some of our viewers may have noticed on Twitter there was there were some tweets going around about a, a report from the BIS about trillions of dollars. I mean, I'm talking sixty to eighty trillion dollars in debt, not on balance sheets that they're really concerned about in the derivative market, foreign exchange swaps, and they say it's hard for them to track this and, and anticipate the next crisis. When I saw that, I was thinking, oh, this has echoes of you know, what we saw in the UK pension system really briefly uh, that caused a massive amount of concern. It was resolved, but you know, there ha we've been talking about, there's been talk about you know, whether this sort of ticking time bombs are sitting not in the financial system, the traditional financial system, but maybe in the, the asset managers, the pensions and in, in the derivatives market. Um, what do you make of that, Andreas? Is that something we're really going to have to dig into and pay attention to? Or is that a, what do you make of that headline? I think it's a big deal if the US dollar continues to strengthen, uh, because underlying this headline, um, we actually know um, which counterparties that are involved in these trades. So these are typical, typically trades be made between pension funds in Europe and Japan and typically uh, institutional investment banks on the other side of the trade in Europe and Japan and to a certain extent in the US, but not to a large extent. Um, and these are trades that are designed to protect the um, pension funds against a drop in the US dollar. So what they do is that they hedge the uh, exchange rate risk of all of their holdings of US equity and US bonds via so-called FX swaps. Uh, and given that they've purchased more and more and more and more equity and bonds in the uh, US uh, in particular over the past three to four years at a record pace, right? This amount of FX swaps being rolled over month over month um, to hedge the currency risk of these dollar holdings, um, it's, it's, it's just been increasing at a rapid pace, right? So the issue here is if the amount of dollar liquidity available to the rest of the world shrinks uh, fast enough to bring the pace of the dollar appreciation to a um, an elevated level at the same time as the amount of dollar liquidity uh, shrinks to a, to such an extent that it makes it very tricky to roll these contracts month over month mm -hmm. uh, because these are all over-the-counter contracts with investment banks uh, and we've seen such periods um, in time before uh, and usually what happens if uh, shit hits, hits the beep here, um, sorry, pardon my French here, uh, mm -hmm. is that the US dollar appreciates rapidly as a mm -hmm. consequence of it mm -hmm. uh, and that pension funds will take a beating in these contracts. Yeah, so it is something we're going to have to watch out for. Yeah. Andreas, great stuff. We have more questions, but don't worry, everyone. Andreas is going to be here all week uh, on the platform, um, and he's doing some deep dives too. So um, we will we will catch up with you as the week goes on, Andreas. Thank you so much for helping set us up. We appreciate it. My pleasure. All right, so that's big picture. We know what you need to be tracking. Let's bring in Jeff Myers now. We're going to drill down and go a little bit lower. Um, Jeff, great to see you again. Um, your your you. sort of area of focus is small cap, but I want to talk about, you know, based on 
some of the cross currents we just, you know, in macro that we just talked about with Andreas. And it certainly sounds like it's complicated. Um, what does this mean for the small cap space? I mean, what will Fed policy mean for small caps overall? Well, within, you know, within the broader technology area, you know, rising rates have, have been uh, very detrimental to multiples. And you saw that playing out really over the first three quarters of the year um, with, without the fundamentals really suffering. And now you're starting to see in, you know, the most recent quarter's earnings that uh, the fundamentals are starting to get hit. Um, you know, PC sales are down, uh, smartphone sales are down, um, and then, you know, semiconductors selling into those markets are down. And now you're seeing some of the, you know, the SaaS software companies uh, like, you know, Salesforce.com uh, just reported earnings with slowing sales. So you're starting to see some of the, the you know, higher valuation companies start to take a hit also. So um, we're going from, you know, just purely valuation hits to now more fundamental hits and where, where it's going to end up, you know, it's tough to, uh, tough to say right now. Yeah. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Do you, do you think that there's been a lot of talk in this environment? Um, and we heard, you know, Diego talking about a paradigm shift and, and there are others as we've been looking into January and trying to figure out what we need to do before we get there. A lot of people feel like we've gone from an era of passive investing to much more active management. I'm sure that's music to your ears, but do you think that the flows will actually uh, vindicate that idea? Do you feel like a bottoms up uh, approach is going to be able to help you help you navigate through these really turbulent waters? You know, I think it is, it really depends. Um, sometimes it depends on the day you're looking at it. Like a day like today, you know, unless you have some really, you know, weighty fundamental news, you know, your stock to be down along with everything else. So there's been a lot of macro, you know, macro-induced uh, movements in, you know, in the, uh, in the markets with these stocks. Um, but, you know, big picture, you know, earnings still matter, M&A still matters, you know, new wins still matter. So, uh, you know, I, in my view, it always, if you have, you know, a fundamental approach, you can always, uh, you know, pick your spots and, and do better, you know, than your benchmarks. All right. Well, you got a couple that you're looking at. So let's take a look at them. And um, one of them is uh, Net Insight, which is located in Sweden. Why do you think this is going to do well? So this is a company, very interesting core business. And then they've developed another business. Uh, based on that core business. So basically what these guys do, their core business is they transport uh, live media from sporting events, you know, through the networks to the viewers. And traditionally this was done by satellite and they do it over the internet. And that's been, uh, you know, uh, a trend that's going in their direction. So, you know, there's less being done with satellite, more being done over the internet. Um, so that business has been growing for them fundamentally you know, probably 10 to 15% a year. And then what they did with this technology is they have a way, you know, if you're going to transport media over the internet, you need to be able to synchronize so you're not losing packets and having, 
you know, uh, judder, um, disrupt the, you know, disrupt the flow of the, of the video. So they've developed this synchronization technique, which has really, you know, which is fundamental to their, their core business. But now what they're doing is they're using that in, uh, in 5G. So in order to like to really get the benefits of 5G, both in terms of speed and um, latency, you know, you need to have very robust synchronization. And most networks, you know, you hear about 5G networks all the time. You know, everybody has 5G now, but most of the networks are, are using older technology for their synchronization. So you're not getting, you know, the full benefits of, uh, you know, of what, what could be with your, with your 5G. Um, so these guys have this very fundamental new approach. Basically, nobody's competing with them, uh, you know, in this in this manner. And um, they they secured a win with Turk Telecom, which was their, you know, basically their anchor win, um, a twenty million dollar contract with Turk Telecom, which is these guys are doing fifty million dollars a year in revenue. So it's a pretty big deal for them. Mm. Um, and this is something where Turk Telecom on its own could become a $50 million customer, basically doubling their revenue. Uh, and they, now they're talking with, um, you know, they have a Canadian uh, company doing a big pilot with them. Uh, you know, they're speaking with T-Mobile, which could be potentially a $500 million win for them. So, you know, this 5G synchronization could be, you know, multiples of, of where the, you know, where the company is, is doing business now. It's interesting to hear the, the thing that makes a difference if you think they're going to be able to get a foothold. By the way, I'm assuming that you have positions in these stocks that you're going to be talking about just for disclosure. Yes, I do. Okay. So um, the ticker on that is N-E-T-I-B, um, if you're interested. It sounds like they would be an obvious acquisition target, no? Yeah, so they would is that, be. Is that, the, is that the play you're hoping for? They're also, they're, I mean, it's only a, what, six, six, and change uh, stock, but they are up fifty eight percent in the past six months. So that's a, I mean, for a, it's you know very low, but it's still a big move. Yeah. So they've been, um, you know, their core business has been strong uh, over the past six months, and they did get the, the initial win with Turk Telecom. So that's driven that's what that moved on, stock yeah. price so far. Um, but uh, but yeah, an acquisition could be you know the end game for them. Uh, you know, both Nokia and Ericsson would probably be very happy to to have them on board. Uh, you know, as this technology, this technology is like sync has been becoming a much bigger, uh, you know, topic of discussion with the 5G telecom providers. Like there's a an annual sync conference every year, and it used to be just like the diehard tech guys, and now you know the uh, more of the business people from the you know big telcos are coming to this conference. So this is becoming a bigger deal. So yeah, this is, I guess, as you're seeing 5G, you know, get to the point now where it's actually going to be rolled out and implemented. Um, you know, everyone is is sort of digging further down the food chain. What about what about the next one? This is is it crayon holding? Am I am I do I have that? No, crayon, not like crayon. C -R -A -Y -O -N. What in Norway, right? What what is that about? So what they do is they do something called software asset management. So basically, they come in. Uh, you know, Microsoft in you know traditionally has had pretty pretty um, complex pricing schemes. And what they do is they come into your company and they help you uh, manage your software state. So basically, you know, right size the number of licenses you need based on you know your growth and um, you know. And so that's historically what they've done. And now they've taken that you know into the cloud. So basically, when when you move your you know your IT infrastructure into the cloud, you need to to figure out you know how many cycles you need. 
and with at what time. So they they help you do that both on a software basis and also on a consulting basis. Yeah, um, so, so is it like sort of like an audit? An audit? Are they kind of auditing to find out whether you're uh, getting the best deal? It it is it is an audit um, in a you know a pretty uh, you know software intensive way. Yeah. And it's it's actually it's an interesting business now because they what they do is they come in to help save you money. So I was going to say right now when everybody wants to cut their budgets, we just heard for SaaS. I guess that's counterintuitively though. It's a good thing. I mean, even though they're in a business that might be getting hit, if they're helping save money, then maybe it's an environment that works for them. Yeah. So they they've seen pretty strong demand over the last two quarters, but uh, they had what they has is some issues in the U.S. Um, with their uh, with attrition, so that kind of hurt their margins in the U.S. and that's what you know, the past couple quarters the stock has been reacting to. Um, but they have pretty you know we we've talked to their U.S. Uh, you know sales team and you know, they have pretty strong management in place there and also you know the new hires are coming up to speed so margins have started improving there um, and that you know along with the top line growth. Uh, should bring the stock back to you know former levels and beyond. Mm. And and the third one we have is digital turbine. Uh, what's this one? This is U.S. based. Is that right? This is U.S. based. Yeah, digital turbine. So what they are is they're sort of a uh, middleman between advertisers and uh, and telcos. So basically, you know, when you go to a Verizon store again, new telephone, um, there usually could be some apps pre-installed on your phone. So they're the guys who say which apps get to be on the phone. So basically, it's like a bidding process, and you know the the app providers basically bid for spots on the phone. And what they do is they take that money and they remit sixty percent of that to the telecom operators. So basically, the telco is getting a new revenue stream, so they like that, and they have deals with AT and T and Verizon uh, in the U.S. and Telefonica, America Mobile outside the U.S. Um, so these big telcos are pretty happy to get this new revenue stream. And also it's good for the advertisers because instead of having to go to each telco, you know, to to sign the, you know, a specific deal, they just come to Digital Turbine and they handle, you know, dealing with all these telcos. So they have this position in the middle, which is strengthened by the more telcos they bring on board and the more advertisers they bring on board, mm. it strengthens their position as a middleman. It's so interesting. Are these are all of these businesses cash flow positive? Because you were in going into an environment where you know the cost of capital is higher, and we've seen the double whammy: small small companies get hit by that. But then, if you're in tech, it's been a problem too. So you know, theoretically, that's a tough spot to be in. But you know, do, do, are they all in a situation where they're cash flow positive and and won't be as affected by that? Yeah, they're all solidly profitable. That's one thing we look at when we're we're looking at a new position is we we want the company to be profitable because um, raising money is always tough, and certainly in this environment, you want to be trying to raise yeah. equity. So, um, so that's a prerequisite for us. Yeah, is it hard ha hanging on to talent right now? I mean, this is another thing with you know companies this size, management really matters, doesn't it? Your team really matters, um, and human capital has been an issue. Um, is that is that still the case? Is that something you look at? It's interesting. So it was more of an issue, I would say, nine months ago, mm. you know, when sort of the great resignation was still, you know, in full, uh, full bloom and people were leaving their jobs for better opportunities. But, you know, what's happened is actually a lot, a lot of the people who left are not so happy at their new places and, you know, have come back, you know, to their former employer 
um, you know, and fewer people are being lured away. So actually, yeah. well, we've seen a lot of tech layoffs too. So there's new right. talent on the market as well. You know, that, that maybe some of these guys can catch. Well, Jeff, um, fascinating. Thank you so much. You always bring us names that most of us haven't heard of, but in an environment where everyone's looking for opportunity, um, some really interesting areas to watch out for. We appreciate it. Sure. Thank you. Love it. Um, thank you. Thanks for everyone uh, joining us today. I'll be back tomorrow with Eric Jackson. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.